If you have a Bible, we're in Romans chapter 11. We're finishing out this chapter, but if you don't have one, don't worry about it. We have the words on the screen so you can follow along with us. But if you don't even own a Bible, we'd love to give you one for free after the service is over. That would be our gift to you. But if you're new today, we've been preaching through the book of Romans for quite some time now. We started back in February, and we've taken a, a break a little bit in August. But for the most part, we've been just preaching through this book. And, and chapter 11, the end of chapter 11, marks a change. In fact, it's going to end in such a way that kind of brings everything to a close that he has said in the first 11 chapters. And then chapter 12 starts the application part of everything that he said in chapters one through 11, because in chapters one through 11, he has been describing our current reality, our current situation. In chapter one, he said that the, because we didn't want God as our God, we didn't want him, God gave us over to sin. God gave us over to our own devices. And then in chapters two, three, four, five, six, seven, he has showed us the result of all of that, that whether you're Jew or Gentile, all of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short. But then he tells us in chapter eight, because of Christ and what Christ has done to set us free, now that if we're in Christ, there is no condemnation. And so then Romans chapter eight is called the greatest chapter in the Bible because it just describes what God has done to save us. And then chapters 9, 10, and 11, he talks about what that means for the Jewish people. And that's where we've been for the last several weeks, just kind of wading through the weightiness of chapters 9, 10, and 11. And we're going to close out this chapter today with one section. We're going to start in verse 33 and go to verse 36. So only four verses that we're going to look at today. But this is the response or Paul's response to everything that has been said up until this point. And then therefore, by default, it should be our response when we think about who God is and what God has done. Let's start in verse 33. And we ended last week's sermon with this one, but I wanted to pick it up this week because it really kicks off this last few verses. And I think it's important for us to read again. And so verse 33, it says this. It says, oh, now everybody say that with me. Say, oh. That was pretty good. I like that. You did a good job. All right, let's try it again. One, two, three. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. You got some big words there and then you got the little word O. Oh, and the little word O oh honestly means more than the big words. Because the little word O oh, in Greek is just one letter. In English, it's two. You might remember this from English class way back in uh, middle school, high school. It is called an onomatopoeia. Anybody remember that one? I didn't either. I had to look it up, all right? But an onomatopoeia is a word that we put language to the sounds that we make. And so when we make a sound, we just turn it into a word. And so this word here, O, is an onomatopoeia because it is a word that just comes from really a groan. And, and the groan of O is what you say when you really can't think of anything else to say. And it can be good or it can be bad, right? Like you, you can get cut off in traffic and somebody just upsets you. You're like, oh, right? Like you're just getting angry. And, and that happens to me often. And, and so I've got to talk to my counselor again about that because my wife reminds me of that. Like you got some issues. Um, and so it can be a negative in the sense of like your favorite football team, something good happens or something bad happens. You can be like, oh my gosh, right? Like it's just this, it's just this expression 
But here, this phrase is in a positive sense, and it's all Paul can get out of his mouth when he thinks about all the amazing things that God has done, because it functions as an interjection. And to use the word as an interjection, what that means is in response to everything that you just read, in response to everything that Paul just said, he interjects this one word here that really is expressing in one simple emotion his response to everything that God has done. So this interjection is a good one. He's interjecting because he can't think of anything else to say because he's just described in this letter, and I tell you this often, the Bible wasn't written in chapters and verses. We put those in centuries later to help us recall where they were at, but this is just one letter. And so he's writing this letter and he gets to this point and he says, oh, and then he tells us why he's interjecting this word. His response is not about like driving the stupidity of the other driver. His response is, oh, the greatness of God. Because what he says next, and look at it again. He says, oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. He says, oh, the depths. God is so deep in riches in wisdom, in knowledge. He says, how unsearchable, how, here's the big word, right? How inscrutable are his ways. And and that just simply means is we can't figure him out. And I said this last week, if you were here, but if not, I'll repeat it for you. When we think wrongly, that, oh, I can't worship a God that I can't figure out, and that is an objection a lot of times for people who don't believe in God. It's like, well, I just don't understand. I I can't figure this out. Where has God, how did this all get here? What about this, and what about that? And we have all these questions, and, and we wrongly think that we can figure them out and say, well, I won't believe in God until I can understand it all. The problem is, you and I can't understand it all. This eight pound thing in between our ears can't hold the capacity or the depths about who God is. And this is what I want you to understand. That's a good thing because let's be honest, if God was limited to your understanding, we would be in a world of hurt, wouldn't we? Like, I mean, just look at humanity today. We've gone insane. And this is why I push all the time and we think some person from some political party is gonna fix it. The problem is, whoever it is, whatever side you're on, and this is not a political statement, this is just a human statement. Whatever side it is, they are still limited to this gray matter in their head. So no human is going to solve the depths of the human problem. (laughs) Einstein, I believe it was, who said, you can't solve the problem with the same mind that created it. And so that's the issue. The human problem is so much greater than any human can solve. And so Paul has been diagnosing the human problem in Romans, and now he's given the solution to the human problem at the end of chapter seven when he says, who can set us free from all of this? Thank God, Jesus Christ. 
And when Paul fathoms from chapter eight to chapter 11, this God, he comes to the end of his own knowledge of understanding and says, all I can understand is what he's shown me, but there is so much more. And thank God there is someone bigger than me that can solve all this. And, 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 and that's where we need to get to. And that's ultimately what faith is. Faith is not, is not opposite reason. Faith is just simply a recognition that reason can only take you so far. Faith is understanding that there is someone greater than you. And this is hard for us to understand. In my nine-year-old daughter, we have this conversation quite often, which is great because she's really thinking about God and she loves God and she's trying to contemplate where God came from. And she's like, well, I understand that, you know, he created us, but who created him? And I always tell her, no one. She's like, well, how can that be? Everybody has a beginning. Everybody has an end. Yeah, everybody but God. He has no beginning. He has no end. Why? Because the Bible says he is the beginning. He is the end. No one created him. He's always been. And when you start fathoming that, when you start thinking about that, you'll blow a fuse up here, won't you? You're like, I, I can't, I can't understand it. And here's what I'm saying to you. That's good news because you finally started to understand what you don't understand. And that is you'll never understand who God is. You can understand what he has said about you. And what he has said about you is he loves you enough to solve your human problem. And Paul reaches this point where he's like, man, he is beyond figuring out. And that's good. And that's why we worship. And so this O here is an interjection to worship because Paul is understanding that everything that he has, everything that has happened, everything that is good has come from him. And this is why he asked a couple of rhetorical questions. Look at the next two verses, verse 34 and 35. For, and I've told you this before, anytime you see the word for or therefore, it's referring back, right? So you ask, what is it therefore? So his questions here are referring back to 31, which are rhetorical in that they answer themselves when you ask them. Verse 34, for who has known the mind of the Lord? Anybody here claim to know the mind of God? No, we can only know what he tells us, but there's so much more to him. This one I love, or who has been his counselor? I know you've tried, right? In fact, that's what most of our prayers are. Us trying to be his counselor. Verse 35, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? And then this is where we get worship wrong and we get our prayers wrong. If we constantly spend our prayers as just our time to try and counsel God to what he should do, then we're misunderstanding the role of prayer. The role of prayer is not for us to try to change him. It's through prayer that he changes us. That's the point of it. That's why Jesus said in his model prayer in Matthew 6, which wasn't meant to just be repeated like with no meaning. It's meant to be a framework. And the framework starts with number one, hallowed be your name. And that's not just a proclamation that Jesus is saying. It's actually a request. And so the first question in the model prayer that Jesus prayed is not give us this day our daily bread. Isn't that how we change it though? Like, oh, how would be your name? 
Uh, you know, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth. Yeah, yeah. So we treat prayer like we gotta like routinely say that and then like, but give me my bread. Give me my bread is not the first question. It's actually hallowed be your name. That's the first request. The second request is let your kingdom come. The third request is let your will be done. Then the fourth request is give us this day our daily bread. So the first three statements aren't statements, they're actually questions, and that is what prayer is. We are praying and asking God's glory and name to be hallowed and lifted up. And so we treat prayer so often as though it is our time to bring God up to speed on what's going on with us. As if God's like, oh, I didn't know that. Oh, I was unaware. This is why I joke, and I've said this often in my almost 10 years of being here. God is not up in heaven like with a scrolling news ticker drinking his coffee. And he's like, oh, I didn't know that happened. What? The market crashed? I didn't see that coming. He's not unaware. God has never had this statement. Oh, you know what I just thought of? The future's not something he knows about. It's somewhere he is and something he predetermines. And so what Paul is recognizing here when he comes to the end of the revelation that God has given him, he's saying, oh, I need to recognize that God is so deep in his wisdom and his knowledge and his riches. Who am I? This is why the psalmist says, what is man that you would be mindful of him? And I think this is the right response of what Paul is saying. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? I.e., no one. This one I love. Or who has given him a gift that he should be repaid? Listen, and we'll dig with this in just a second, verse 36, but here's a little precursor. Anything that you have ever given God, even your own life, you didn't give to him in such a way where he owes you something. See, this is the other part of our prayers that are so off. Not only do we treat prayers like we're bringing God up to speed on something, but we pray in such a way where we get mad at him as though he has left something out that he owes us. And this is where we got to understand. God owes us nothing. This is what we did in Romans 9. God owes you nothing other than judgment. He owes you nothing other than judging you for your sins, the human problem. That's all he owes you. He owes you no good thing after that. But then people are like, well, but I served him. Well, great. Well, I tithed. Well, awesome. Well, doesn't that count for something? Listen, not when what you gave him was actually already his. Because that's what Paul says next. Look at verse 36. For, remember for, what is it there? For, for from him and through him 
and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Three prepositions there. And if you've been around here, you know I love me some prepositions. Three of them. Let's break each one of them down. First one, for, from him. The word from is a preposition of source. And what that means is everything has found its genesis, and that's just a Bible word for beginning. That's why the Bible starts with the book called Genesis, which that is just Hebrew for saying beginning. Everything found its beginning in God. Everything, all things. And that word there, all things, I told you last week, all can be used in different ways in Greek. It can be talking about each and every or all categories. And this one, it applies to all of them. Because all things means, what do you guess? All things, you're right, you're a Greek scholar, all right? All things are first from him. They find their source from him. Friday night, we were at the, my son's football game and while he was playing on the stands, we were having a conversation and one of the other kids' dads and his uh, brother was standing there and we were having a conversation about uh, some food and the dad asked for, or the son asked for something, the dad asked for something and the son thought that what he got was his. And the dad lovingly reminded him, no, that's mine because I gave you the money to buy it. And then I jokingly told them the story of what I do with all my kids all the time, which if you've been around here, I tell them, anytime we sit down for dinner, we get the food and I make my kids give me the first bite off of their plate. And you may think you're a horrible parent, no. Or you may think you just really love food which is what my wife says why I do this. But I, said, I do love food, ain't gonna lie. But no, I make my kids give me the first bite off of their plate because I love hearing their expression when I do it. They will invariably say, but this is mine. And I will lovingly correct them and say, oh, with what money did you get such stuff? I didn't say it quite like that. I don't know why I'm talking in King James language right now. <laughs> How did thouest getteth such foodeth? <laughs> and then they know the drill now. Well, from you. That's right. And why do I have my kids tied? It's not just because I love orange chicken from Panda, all right? It's because when my kids leave my house, I want them to know that everything came from their heavenly father. And that is illustrated by the fact that they understand that everything they have in their house right now comes from their earthly father. So I want my kids to tithe so that they understand that I'm a father who loves to give them good gifts, but don't you dare take the gift and use it to dishonor me. And yet we do that with God all the time. And this is why, and I'm gonna push on you and I love pushing on you and you hate it. I guess that wasn't funny, but I'm gonna, <laughs> this is why I push on you. Tithing isn't about, oh, the church just wants my money. No, we're not that cheap. We want your heart. And God wants your heart. You say, well, I just can't tithe. It's not yours. 
God just doesn't want a tenth of your money. He wants a tenth of everything because it's all from him. Well, I'm worth this job. With what body? Did you know that our earth spins on the perfect axis around the sun? If it were a millisecond, not a millisecond, a millimeter off one direction, we would burn up. The other direction, we would freeze. You're breathing with what air? With what bones? With what brains? You didn't make yourself. Self-made men are a myth. They don't exist. And the great irony is you came from a woman. <laughs> All things are from him. And we want to debate? See, all things are not just from him, but all things are through him. This is a preposition of means. It's not just a preposition of source, it's the preposition of means. And what that means is, not only are all things from him, but they are coming from him through him. Not even through you. And this is the great mystery. Yes, the Bible gives commands of like this one, Philippians, work out your own salvation. I think it's Philippians, maybe it's Hebrews. Work out your own salvation. But then right below it, it says, but it is God who works in you. So even the work that you do is not done just through you. It's done through the Holy Spirit in you. So it's not just from him, it's through him. Everything right now didn't just find its genesis in him, it finds its sustainability through him. We're still breathing because of him. We still are alive and thinking and feeling through him. This is why in the book of Genesis, it says the Holy Spirit was hovering over the face of the deep because it was through him. Not only from him, but through him, all things. And then the last preposition, to him. That one is a preposition of direction. So preposition of source, preposition of means, preposition of direction. And here's what it means. Not only is it coming from him, it's going back to him. It's flowing in one way. One way. From him, through him, back to him. From the Father, through the Spirit, to the Son. From the Father, through the Spirit, to the Son. These aren't just picked out of thin air of what Paul's saying here. You need to understand how the Trinity works. But here's the problem. Most of our lives, not only do we not recognize it comes from him and it's coming through him, but we don't have the right flow where it's going back to him. Some of us need to fix the flow of our life. Let me ask you, in which direction right now is everything in your life going? Which direction? Is it going to him? If it came from him and it's coming through him, it should be going back to him. And what that means is this, it doesn't end with you. You and I are not the center of the universe. 
One of the great tragedies of church history is the Catholic Church wanted to kill the guy and did who said the earth isn't the center of the universe. The sun is. And the guy who said that was a Christian. But we don't like thinking that we're not the center of the universe. Listen, listen, you are not even God's greatest priority. You need to understand that. You're like, well, thanks, Pastor. You make me feel horrible. No. No. Because anybody who puts themselves at the center, it actually makes them go insane. You want to know how I know that? Look at Hollywood. I mean, we are a culture that is obsessed with celebrities. We are obsessed with likes on Instagram. How many likes did it get? I don't know, throw that in the trash. We were obsessed with people seeing us. We even came up with a whole new category of photos and we called them selfies. People are like, can I take a selfie? I don't even, I hate the word. Can't we just take a photo? but we are obsessed with self. And again, you look at Hollywood, you look at any sports figure who rises in celebrity status, who rises in fame. And we look at them and we think, they are crazy. And any celebrity would tell you they hate the fame that it has brought them because they can't live a normal life. You wanna know why? Because the human heart can't handle being the center. It's not made to be the center. This week I was having another conversation with my nine-year-old daughter. She had a medical procedure and we were driving home one night and my, and my daughter, she's so awesome. She's just so honest and she's been in a lot of pain and, and it was me, my wife, Lindsay and Natalie driving home and she said, you know, because we're asking all these questions. She's like, it sure is awesome being the center of attention. She said, but I just don't like that I'm having to be in so much pain in order to do it. And I, Lindsay and I laughed. I'm like, well, that's the problem. Being the center only brings pain. And then we had a conversation about God. Baby, you, you, you can never handle being the center. And that's the good news. The good news is earth isn't the center. The sun is. Because if earth is the center, then it's sustaining everything else. But if the sun is the center, then the sun is sustaining everything else. I don't know about you, but I want someone else in the center other than me whose job it is to sustain. You with me? So what's the direction of your life? Is the flow of everything in your life, time, talents, treasures, flowing to him? Because if it came from him, it's going to flow back to him. And he will let it come through you to him. But if it doesn't go through you to him, then you have broken the flow. So you need to fix the flow. Because the flow is to God. Because there is no one more glorious than God. So God's highest priority is also the thing that brings us the most amount of joy, which is himself. And see this word here, if you have your, your Bible in this subsection, 
it'll say the word doxology. And I mentioned this last week, but the word doxa is the Greek word, means glory, ology, study of. But the Greek word doxa, a lot of times can refer to light or radiance or greatness. And so people talk about the glory of God, like the brightness of God, and that's okay. But the word really, what's interesting about the word doxa, it means right opinion. And so we use the other English word coming from these Greek words, orthodoxy. And orthodoxy, ortho means straight or right. Orthodoxy means right thinking. And so when we say someone is orthodox, we say they are thinking rightly. When someone is heterodoxy, hetero means wrong or broken or off. So heterodoxy is wrong thinking. And a word you're probably more familiar with is paradox. That means a conflicted thinking. So there's right thinking, there's wrong thinking, there's conflicted thinking. And here's the connection. When we think rightly about who God is, orthodoxy, it's going to naturally lead to doxology, which is worship of him. Because we are now ascribing the rightness to him. And so here's the connection. If you and I aren't worshiping God, it's because we're thinking wrongly about him. Because when you think rightly about him, the only natural response you can say is like Paul, where you're like, oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the glory of this uncreated creator. We don't sit in service singing, living home. What time's the game on? Oh, Falcons are at one. I need to go here, go there, go there. No. Have you not understood yet the Falcons will break your heart? <laughs> That's wrong thinking. And, and think about it. And, and again, listen, I got my favorite teams too. But how much of our happiness is dependent upon 11 males getting a pigskin across a goal line? Really? And like most men, like, I, I don't think in church. What are you doing when you're at the football game? Woo! That's called. Worship. No one has to convince you to cheer on your favorite team because your heart is already with them. And when your heart is with them, your mouth follows and your hands follow. But yeah, when we come into church, We need to start thinking rightly about God, my friends. Thinking rightly about who he is and what he's done. In just a moment, we're gonna take communion. You should have got the elements when you came in. And we're gonna celebrate the body that was broken for us. And we're gonna celebrate the blood that was poured out for us. And here's what you need to know. What Paul is saying in these 11 chapters is all things are from God, even your salvation. It's from him. 
The theological term for that is called monergism. Mono means one, and the second part of that word, it comes from energism, where we get our English word energy, it means to work. And so the salvation that Paul has been saying in the first 11 chapters is it's monergistic. What that means is it's a result of one person's working. It is not synergistic. We know that word because synergistic we use in English. We just brought it over. It means synergy. It means more than one working together. Now that is good on a team. We want our teams, our groups, all the people that serve here being synergistic. We want them to work, but we we want everybody to understand that your salvation was not synergistic. You had nothing to do with it. It was monergistic. It was because one person worked and his name was Jesus. You and I are the result of someone else's work. This is why Paul says in Ephesians 2, we are his masterpiece created in Christ Jesus for good works. Then it's synergistic with God, but your salvation was monergistic. It was because one person worked. And this is where people have struggles and they talk about the sovereignty of God. Did I choose God or did God choose me? And what I've tried to labor over the last several weeks is to help you understand you would never have chosen God if he didn't first choose you. And so the whole debate about free will or God's choice, one of them highlights the choice of man. One of them highlights the choice of God. Let me ask you a question. Which one gives more glory to God? Do you recognize that you are saved today, not because you made the right choice, and if other people were just more like you, then they would be saved? Or do you recognize that you're saved today because God was gracious to you, and you want him to be more gracious to others as well, and it's a mystery to you how you got saved, but all you know, it was because he worked. Because you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God made you alive. So my friends, I have labored this point for the last several weeks because I want to push you to a place where you get to like Paul and you say, oh, all I know is I was once lost, but now I'm found. All glory to God forever. Amen. And amen just means it is true. It's true. Paul's saying amen to everything he said to these 11 chapters. And in just a moment, the worship team's gonna come out and we're gonna sing and we're gonna say amen. But before we do that, we're gonna take communion. So you can get the elements out because I want you to understand that when you take these two things, The first is representative. It's symbolic of the body of Christ that was broken for you. And in just a moment, when we take it, you're acknowledging it's all him. And then we're going to partake of the juice, which is representative of the new covenant in his blood that God promised in Jeremiah 31 that Christ fulfilled that his blood would cover our sins and he would give us a new heart that loves him. We're recognizing I can't change my heart. He did. But here's the deal. We pass these out to everybody, but 
if you are here today and you haven't trusted Christ, then two things. I'm gonna give you an opportunity to trust him. And if you take that opportunity, you'll be saved and you can take communion with us. But if you haven't trusted him, just quietly, we're not gonna make a show of it. I'm just gonna ask you not to take them. And, and that's for you, because I don't want you to heap condemnation on yourself. Because why in the world would you take something that you don't believe in? But the offer today stands. By grace, through faith, in Christ, you can trust these for what they represent, that Jesus died in your place for your sins. So if you never trusted Christ, I'm gonna give you an opportunity to do that. So would you pray with me, everybody? Father, thank you so much for loving us, that you sent your son, Jesus, in our place for our sin. No human could solve the problem, so you became human. And you took on our sin and shame. And you paid the price, but you came back to life again. And you're alive today. And that's why Jesus is the only way, because no one has ever come back to life, never to die again. And so actually, God, in trusting you, we're trusting the one with the most evidence. But God, I know there are people here today who haven't trusted you. So right now, would you open their eyes to see the truth about who Jesus is and save them? No one looking around or talking here as we close just for a moment. If you have never trusted God, if you have never come to a place of understanding that all things are from him, through him, and to him, and that you haven't been thinking rightly about him, but now he has opened your eyes to see the truth, and so you want to respond in faith. Then I'm going to lead you in a prayer of confession. As Paul says in Romans 10:9, if you'll confess with your mouth, believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, you'll be saved. So it's not about a prayer but I'm just gonna help you in your own confession. So if you wanna trust Christ right there where you are, I'm gonna ask you to pray with me, not out loud, and it goes like this. Say, Father, thank you for loving me, that you sent your son in my place for my sin. Thank you for Christ. I confess my sin and I ask Jesus to forgive me. I give you my life. I'm trusting in Christ alone. Again, nobody looking around or talking, but if you just prayed that with me, very simply, would you just lift your hand up so we can see that? Thank you. We just got a simple gift we want to give you. Thank you. And you can put them down. But then for those of us who have already trusted Christ and those who just trusted Christ, in the second word, we're gonna take the communion. But if you're here and you haven't trusted Christ, again, I just simply ask you not to take it in honor of what it represents because it is the body, it is the blood that was broken and poured out for us. Father, we take this now in honor of Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.